This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in Melbourne's CBD. Today's big question, why is work so frustrating? We asked this question today to Ian Harper. Ian is one of Australia's best-known economists. He is Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Melbourne and enjoyed a 25-year academic career. Ian also served as the inaugural chairman of the Australian Fair Pay Commission and in May 2016 was appointed to the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia. And he joins me now. Please welcome Ian Harper. Rob, a pleasure to be with you. It's great. Now, Ian, welcome to Bigger Questions. Um, Thank you. Now, Ian, we regularly ask big questions on this show, but you ask big questions each month with the board of the Reserve Bank, Hmm. where you set the nation's interest rates. So what goes into answering this big question each month when you you meet? Do you just kind of flip a coin, finger in the air? Well, we don't flip a coin. If we did, (laughs) it would take three hours. It'd be the longest flip I've ever (laughs) had. Okay. Uh, there are lots of uh, advice and information comes forward to the board. Yep. And then, as I say, after three hours of so of deliberation, we make a decision. Lots of work goes into making this determination each month. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Ian Harper about why work is so frustrating. So, Ian, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about the frustrations of work. Now, do you feel qualified? I think so. I've worked for 40 years. (laughs) It has its aspects of frustration. Okay, excellent. Well, there's two questions and there's both multiple choice. Question one. Now, one frustration of work is that a business that a founder has worked hard to build may not survive once the founder decides to hand the business on to the next generation. So according to the Family Business Institute, what percentage of family businesses survive into the next generation? Okay. Is it A, 100% with the proliferation of management advice and online business coaching, all businesses survive a generational handover? Is it B, about 75%, is it three quarters of businesses? C, 50% or D, 30%, less than a third of businesses survive into the next generation? I'd say D. And the answer is indeed D. I can see why you're on the board of the Reserve Bank. Only 30% of businesses survive into the second generation. In fact, only 12% survive into the third generation Mm. and only 3% into the fourth. Now, that percentage, it doesn't surprise you? No, no, no. There's an old saying, clogs to clogs in three generations. And those figures back it up. Yeah, what what does that mean, clogs to clogs? Well, I mean, you start out with clogs, i.e. working class, right? Yeah. The family rises up the tree and then the third generation, it's back down again. Back to where it started. Yeah, that's right. First generation makes it, second generation consolidates third generation blows it to the wind. (laughs) Question two. The website buzzfeed.com outlined the 26 most annoying things about working in an office. Hmm. What did they consider to be the most annoying thing about working in an office? Was it A, noisy eaters, B, noisy typers, C, having to spend the first half of every Monday answering exactly the same question, what did you do on the weekend? Or D, martyrs who insist on hauling themselves into work despite being infectiously ill. So which of those was the most annoying thing about working in an office? Hmm, I reckon B, noisy typers. And the answer is, in fact, B. <laughs> that's two out so, of two, Robert. That's right, yeah, that's, right, that. that's very good. So who's the, who's the noisiest typer on the board of the Reserve Bank? <laughs> <laughs> the noisiest type is probably me. <laughs> 
Well, Ian, obviously you get uh, very frustrated with work because you got two of our two smaller questions right. Big round of applause. Yeah. For... <laughs> so, Ian, what else frustrates you about working in an office apart from noisy typers? Well, frustrating about working in an office is... I think the general level of hubbub and noise mm -hmm. when you're trying to do the sort of thing that I spend my time trying to do, thinking through issues carefully, then frankly people answering telephone, doing what they have to do yeah. in a modern open office can be frustrating. Mm -hmm. uh, having other people occupy your office when you're away <laughs> to escape that can also be frustrating. That's a generational comment. All right. Okay. They leave like chip wrappers around or something, do they? Mm, or? Sometimes. <laughs> We won't Generally talk. only once. <laughs> <laughs> so Ian, we're talking about the frustrations of work, but amidst the frustrations and annoyances, do you enjoy your work? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah? Uh, I've done much the same thing throughout my working career and, and I've considered myself extremely fortunate to be able to do that. Uh, and the reason that that has been sustainable is that the type of work that economists do is very varied. Mm -hmm. uh, and economic circumstances are always changing, as everybody can attest. Mm -hmm. So um, the problems that you're working on are new. As they say, the questions remain the same. It's just the answers that are different. Yeah. So, so what specifically you, do you enjoy? Obviously, you like the variety. And yeah, the, variety uh, I enjoy. And the challenge? The challenge, the depth of the issues, mm -hmm. uh, trying to understand exactly, as I've just said, how trends, changing trends affect the way you think about problems. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's always fresh. Uh, the other delightful thing about my job is that I get to work with bright young people. So they bring forward new techniques, new ideas, new arguments, some of which you can engage with from your own perspective, having seen more of history than they've seen. And in many cases, of course, it goes the other way. They bring you new knowledge, new techniques, things that, you, that I was unaware of. So mm. that makes uh, for an exceptionally vibrant working environment. Mm. Now, Canadian educator Lawrence J. Peter once said, an economist is an expert who will know tomorrow why the things he predicted yesterday didn't happen today. <laughs> is economics therefore useless? <laughs> what? As one of many cheap shots <laughs> people put to economics. Let, let me say uh, in favour of that, that uh, forecasting is probably the thing for which economists are best known and least respected. Right. As far as we're concerned, forecasting is a weak suit and we don't regard economics basically as a forecasting profession. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in the business of trying to understand and explain, not forecast. Uh, so it's, you know, unsurprising that our forecasts aren't particularly good. Mm. Well, the other technical uh, answer is that many of the things that people are interested in economists forecasting are often just random, like, for example, share prices or the exchange rate. And there's no point in trying to forecast them. They're a random walk. Mm. Uh, having said all that, if you can't have some view about what the future might hold, then it's not unreasonable for people to say, well, as you said before, Rob, well, why don't you just toss a coin? What's the use of all this understanding if it can do nothing? Mm. We often compare ourselves with the medical profession uh, in trying to make sense of extremely complex systems and systems which are, in a sense, watching you while you watch them, mm -hmm. right, dealing with patients and, and, and the human system. Uh, and the, the other you know, point of comparison there, is that you could say the same thing about the medical profession. Uh, you didn't forecast the fact that having had your medical exam, I walk outside and have a heart attack. Right? Or, or the next week I'm diagnosed with some disease. I mean, what's, how useful is this if you can't predict that? Mm. Well, the reality is that you can't always predict these things, and it's the same with economics. But I don't see people tossing medicine out. But is that frustrating, though, at times? If you Well, it is frustrating. <laughs> and I mean, it's as frustrating as it must be. I'm not a doctor, but it must be for a doctor to do exactly that, to have that come back in his or her face and think, well, how did I not see that? Mm. Mm. Uh, it's the same for us. 
that um, you know you think well take for example the exchange rate which I've just said is an unpredictable device what well, we would like to think that the exchange rate would respond in certain ways mm. to particular settings of economic policy and just when you think it's going in the right direction it goes the other way mm. uh, partly because the exchange rate's a two-sided coin and what's happening to the exchange rate is as affected by policy settings elsewhere mm. as much as they are by policy settings here mm. so getting those things wrong or more to the point, not having things evolve as you would like them to evolve or expected them to, mm. is disappointing, if not frustrating. Mm. Well, I mean, many economists didn't pick the GFC, for example. No, absolutely. Yeah. As a professional economist, I'm certainly not sitting here and saying that ours is necessarily the best perspective uh, on these issues because so much is at stake. Mm. Mm. So what are the particular frustrations that you feel in your work? You, you spend a lot of time analysing economic problems and putting forward what you think uh, the best considered professional advice about a particular subject. And then you watch the government walk away from it. Mm. Right? Uh, and now, you know, there's no, I'm not saying that it shouldn't be criticised. Of course it can be criticised. These issues often have more than one side. Mm. But let's say as a professional, you're saying, well, I think this is the best professional advice. Mm. And the government says, well, you know, thanks very much and just shelves the advice and goes and does the opposite. Mm. We're not unique in this. To come back to my analogy with the medical profession, it would be as frustrating as I imagine it is for a doctor mm. to give a patient the best considered medical advice only to watch the patient go off and do the exact opposite. Mm. Uh, at some level, you have to say, well, that's, that's the patient's right. And that's where economists end up. It's where I end up. Is mm. To say, well, minister, it's your right. You're the one who faces the public. You have to win an election. Mm. I don't. Yeah. Um, my job is to offer you frank and fearless advice. Mm. Uh, and that's what I believe I've done. At the end of the day, I can go home and feel as I've done my job. Yep. But you're asking about frustration. Yeah. It would it's be, frustrating. Well, of course it's frustrating. You'd, you'd prefer that the advice that the minister would say, terrific, right? Let's go and do exactly that. Yep. And then you watch this unfold. Mm. So how do you then handle the frustrations that you feel at work, particularly with this issue? Well, I think that the answer to that, Rob, is that you need to have a, a perspective yep. on what work represents. Mm -hmm. And there, I think, um, my Christian faith helps me to put that into broader perspective. Yeah, how so? Well, the Bible speaks about work being frustrating, interestingly enough, Yeah. Uh, at least in this life. I mean, the Bible says two things about this that I find particularly effective. The first is that our God, the God we worship as followers of Christ, is a working God. Mm -hmm. uh, and God thinks that work is good. The Bible also affirms to us that work can be in this life frustrating. Yeah. Uh, and I think that having a perspective on work that comes from my Christian faith affirms those two things. Mm. This is good, but it's also frustrating. So you come with an expectation that work's going to be frustrating uh, or that there's a, an inherent frustration involved in work at different times. Yeah, I, I think it's more, if you like, it's a consolation. I'm not saying that I yeah. start a job thinking, well, this is going to <laughs> right? no. no, I start a job in full belief that this will work. It's when it starts to, to unravel yeah. that I then think, oh, great. Then you think, well, you know, mm, perhaps I shouldn't be so surprised. Yeah. Mm. Well, you mentioned before the Bible and your Christian faith. Maybe can mm. you tell us the story of what led you to believe that? Because yeah. you weren't raised in a Christian home necessarily. Uh, that's true. But do you want to tell us your story? Sure. Yeah, and I wasn't raised uh, in a Christian home, but I was sent to an Anglican school. Mm -hmm. Uh, and my father and mother decided to do that, partly because my father had been to the same school and he had respect for people who were teaching in that school, not necessarily to, for an explicit exposure to the Christian faith. Yeah. But that, that did happen. 
But I emerged okay. from the school without a Christian faith. Yeah. And then happily continued on so you, what for were some you, years. What were you doing in that time? What were you pursuing? Well, you I was think? just pursuing my career, like you know most young people do. I'd yeah. left school, gone to university, decided what I wanted to do, and living my life quite happily, achieving the things I was able to achieve, yeah. and there was no room for anything else. I yeah. didn't I needed that. How important was work to you at this point? Well, work was my life. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up? Right. In other words, what is your life about? Well, my life was uh, seeking to become an economist as quickly as I could, train myself up to the highest levels that I felt I could, and then um, get on with the job. Mm-hmm. That was my life. And you were getting on with the job? Oh, indeed. Yeah, I went yeah. straight from university, well, from undergraduate to my graduate studies at ANU. And then, um, interestingly enough, my first job as a graduate economist was with the Reserve Bank. <laughs> so clogs to clogs, as they say. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> point taken. <laughs> They're nice, a great of clogs in the boardroom. Um, now, you also, you also, obviously, along the way, you got married, and yeah. you were married outside the church. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Then you went to Princeton mm. in the US mm. uh, as a visiting academic. Mm. What happened there? Well, uh, for me, professional things, really only. But for my wife, uh, given that she was spending a fair amount of time with, with our two sons and sort of at a bit of a loose end, if you might say. It's a different country, and I was the one who was working. She started to uh, go along to a church service that was held in the Princeton Chapel. And uh, that was something that, yeah, gave rise to some interesting conversations between us. Let's just say that. Right. What, what happened? Yeah. Uh, do you want to exp- explain a well, bit more? Well, uh, you know, I suppose I wanted to know why she felt the need to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that stage, anyway, she was just saying, well, she felt that there was a calling there. There was something that was speaking to her. She wasn't quite sure what it was herself. She'd had no Christian upbringing, Mm -hmm. uh, but she felt there was something that was drawing her. Mm -hmm. And I suppose at that stage, I did my best to try and dissuade her and said, oh, well, it was just, you know, an interesting thing Mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. Uh, But it grew from there. Mm. And did it affect your marriage? Uh, Not at that stage. Later on, when she decided um, that she was, in fact, going to become a Christian, uh, that was when I thought, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, I know a bit about this. I went to a church school, and as far as I'm concerned, uh, we don't need that in our lives. So I objected. Yeah, Um, and how did that manifest itself? Well, I said that she wasn't going to go to church, basically. I uh, I knew enough about this particular faith to know that, uh, you know, she did what her husband said. Uh, (laughs) And uh, needless to say, uh, that didn't settle the matter. (laughs) Uh, So I feel ashamed of that now, but uh, that's the truth. I did say that. And uh, it gave rise to some difficulties. And then, as I say, on one particular Sunday, she decided, she came out to me and she was all dressed up and the boys were dressed up. And I said, what do you think you're doing? She says, well, she says, I'm going to church and I'm taking our sons to church and you can do what you like. And that was the first time in 12 years of marriage that she'd ever spoken to me like that. And so I knew this was serious. Uh, And I also knew that when ranking between, you know, my, if you like, I suppose, sense of power or whatever, however you want to describe it in my marriage, it was clear where the priority lay. Mm. So I said, okay, all right, all right. Uh, I said, then I'll come to church with you, uh, but I'll only go to an Anglican church because at least I know they're harmless. (laughs) (laughs) She was going to the Church of Christ, God bless her, and uh, I wish the Church of Christ every good wish. uh, And it was, but anyway, that's what happened. (laughs) So you returned to Australia and you met mm. a visiting academic from the UK. Mm. What happened when you met him? I was struggling, obviously, through this process and wondering, you know, where, where, where we were at. Mm. Uh, and this particular chap was visiting from uh, England. He's since become very distinguished. He's even knighted these days. Very fine fellow, very fine economist. And uh, I was wanting to bring him and his wife or invite them across to our place for dinner. 
one evening, but I felt constrained because of the difficulties at home. And I, thought, I knew him well enough at that point to be able to say, look, you know, I'd love to have you and, and Catherine for dinner, but I just feel as I can't at this stage. He said, oh, he said, I'm sorry to hear that. Is there anything I could do? And I said, well, not unless you could explain to me what becoming a Christian means. Uh, expecting, of course, that he would have no idea. And he just looked at me and he said, well, as a matter of fact, he said, I could. I happen to be a believer myself. <laughs> well, that fairly knocked me over <laughs> because here was a man for whom I had very high professional regard. Uh, was obviously brighter than I was and I, well, I just had a very high regard for him. And he was telling me the same thing that my wife was telling me. Mm. So I said, well, have you got some, uh, uh, some time now? He said, all the time you need. And I said, okay. So we went in and for the next hour we chatted about what it meant and how we might respond. And, and to cut a long story short, he counselled me. He said, well, are you prepared to go to church with your wife? And I said, well, yes, I was because of the background. Mm. And then he said, well, that's my advice. Do that. And any questions that you've got, let's talk. Mm. Uh, and we did. Mm. And so you went along to church. Mm. What happened when you went along? Oh, when I went along to church, uh, a few things had changed in school, which I found a bit disconcerting. <laughs> something, had, something had happened to the old hymns. I don't know what <laughs> it's funny how you don't want to do anything. And then suddenly, think, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> it was none of my business, but I felt proprietorial right. Uh, after the service, the uh, chap came down who was the vicar who had taken the service and he introduced himself and he said... Uh, he said, oh, he said, you're at Melbourne University. I said, that's right. He said, oh, well, you'd know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I named all the, my colleagues, three or four of them, you see. And I said, I do. well, yes. I said, how do you know these people? He said, well, I used to be an economist. I said, oh, no, now they're a terrible <laughs> <laughs> And I said, what happened to you? <laughs> he said, well, he said, I became a missionary and went off, and now here I am in parish ministry. And, and I said, no, 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 how did you end up here? And, and, and he said, well, so we should talk about that sometime. Anyway, the vicar turned out to be an economist as well. So now I had two people. Mm. And the more I heard about him, of course, the more I realised that I had respect for him too for his professional achievements. And he too was a believer. And in fact, he was an ordained minister of the church. Mm. And so you ended up reading the Bible. Mm. Yeah, well, he challenged me. I, I would going along to church two or three times after that. And then he came down after the service and he looked at me and he said, uh, you don't believe a word of this, do you? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, how long do you intend to keep coming to this church while you don't believe a word of it? I said, well, mate, I said, economist to economist. <laughs> I said, if you can explain this to me in a way that I, I can believe, then I'll believe it. Right? Thinking, of course, he had no hope. And he just looked at me and he said, do you mean that? And I said, of course I mean that, economist to economist. He said, then you're on. <laughs> I said, what does that mean? Has he got a Bible? I said, I suppose somewhere. He says, good. He says, get it. He says, open it. Find a book called Mark. He says, read the first two chapters. He says, you're free Tuesday night? I said, I could be. He says, then I'll be there at half past seven. He said, and then you can ask me whatever you like. Mm -hmm. So this began a process of reading through the yeah, Gospel yeah, of we Mark. Did. We ran, um, through, the gospel, ran did, through the Gospel. What did you discover? I think what impressed me was that if you were trying to make this up, you wouldn't put in there a lot of the episodes that I read about, mm. particularly where Jesus expresses you know, impatience with the disciples and basically says, how long have I got to put up with you people, right? And you think, well, if you're trying to impress me that this man is somehow God, why would you put that in there? And, and it's what I said to John. I, I asked him many questions, and, and um, the most impressive answer that he gave me from those questions, which isn't to say the other answers weren't comprehensive, uh, was when he'd say to me, you know what, I don't know. And I'd say to him, listen, I said, you're an educated man, and you're telling me you don't know the answer to that question. He says, that's right. And I said, well, how's that supposed to work, right? You don't understand it, you should believe it. He just looked at me and he says, I reckon there are lots of things that you don't understand, and yet you believe them to be true. 
And I knew that that was, one, the statement of an educated, intelligent man, and secondly, that he was dead right. Mm-hmm. He said, good, so what do you think? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> so how did you resolve that lack of Well, he decision? said to me, well, you do one more thing. And I said, what's that? He said, well, I want you to come into town with me and I'll take you to a place that you might find interesting. I said, all right. I said, where's that? He said, well, it's a theological college. You ever been to one? I said, no, I hadn't. So he took me off to Ridley College, which is the Anglican theological, one of the Anglican theological colleges here in Melbourne. And uh, we met at the bookshop. Mm. And uh, when I walked into the bookshop, I'd never been to a theological college, let alone a theological bookshop before. And I realised at that point, Rob, that I had seriously underestimated this. Here I was, uh, a man of the university. I was a professor at the university. And so my first reaction was to think, ooh, 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 uh, you've underestimated this. Right? And he said, oh, look, he said, come over here. I said, I wanted to show you this book. He opened it up and he showed me the front piece. And here were all these traditional arguments a number of which I'd put to him. He said, I wanted to buy you this commentary. I said, what's that? He said, well, he said, it's a book where scholars discuss a number of the issues that you raised. Mm-hmm. He said, and I said, what's it got the answers? And he said, no, what you'll find is an informed scholarly discussion about these matters. These people were really testing this stuff in ways that I couldn't, I was not tutored in this. I'm thinking of the easy arguments these guys are dismissing them. You got an argument? Here, try this, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, which I found very impressive. And so you found that very impressive. Mm. And then you did make a decision, though? Yeah, that's right. It was soon afterwards. It was Mac Christmas Day, 1989. And after the sermon, I, you know, I'd listened in fair enough. And I thought, yeah, I guess that lines up. And there was a call for communion. And I'd not gone to communion before because, of course, I wasn't a believer. Mm. And as people were, were filing forward to the communion rail to take uh, communion on that Christmas Day, I looked and I thought to myself, (laughs) what do you know? It's actually true. So I got up and walked down and took communion. Uh, He saw me at the communion rail and he gave me communion and then straight after the service he made a beeline for me and he said, you took communion today and I said, that's right. He said, why? And I said, because it's true. And he gave me a great big hug and I came into the kingdom. Mm. Now, in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which is in the Bible, it says in chapter 2, I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. Mm. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil, which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So how do those words resonate with you. Well, they describe for me the types of experiences that I think people should expect, and that is that you know, whether you're building wealth for yourself or, in fact, even if you're, you're serving people, you know, you're a teacher or you're a nurse or indeed a missionary, that um, you could toil for years and either see nothing for it mm. uh, or see that work rise and then perish. Mm. Uh, you know, what does the old hymn say? Frail as summer's flowers we flourish blows the wind and it's gone. Mm. Right? I think that's from Psalm 103. Mm. So it, it, it provides me with a perspective that, yes, um, you, you really ought not to expect that these things will last. Mm. And um, that can be an antidote mm. to worldly frustration, but also not a counsel for doing nothing. That's mm. sure. Now, you were the inaugural chairman of the Australian Fair mm. Pay Commission from 2005 to 2009, where you mm. oversaw the process for setting Australia's minimum wage. Now, the commission was disbanded 
in mm. July 2009. Mm. Did you find that frustrating? Well, there's a case in point, right? Uh, now, to be fair, uh, it's the government that set the commission up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the Howard government, and it was the Rudd government that dismantled it. So in both cases, of course, the governments have the right to do exactly what they did. Mm. Uh, I had set in place a range of things that I thought would improve the way minimum wages were set in this country, uh, all of which were envisaged, I might add, by the government's legislation, the former government, the Howard government's legislation, but I made that work as far as I could. And then all of that was simply set aside. Um, with one minor exception, I think. Well, maybe not Does that make you feel frustrated? Well... All that work, all the toil and energy that you've poured, all the, and your yeah. skill that you've applied is, in some ways has become Well, disappointed. Yeah. Maybe rather than frustrated. Right. But disappointed that those... There were one or two small bits that survived. But, yeah, disappointed. Mm, mm. Now, the author reflects on this and says, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun... So is despair a reasonable response to see the fruit of our labour potentially be squandered? Well, I think it's a response that you could expect yep. if you think that your work is all there is to it. Yeah. Uh, if you think that your work is your sole purpose for being, then, yeah, despondency would be a natural outcome. So I didn't despair of what happened to me. Mm-hmm. I was disappointed, but I didn't despair of it. Mm. Now, the author does provide some hope when he says in verse 24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, Mm. for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Mm. So how has viewing work as a gift of God changed your perspective? Well, I think that it helps you to work at whatever it is you've been given the privilege to work at, uh, without being bothered by whether it will last or not, Mm. even beyond your own working lifetime, maybe not even beyond the next six months. But that this that you've been given to work with is a source of deep satisfaction uh, and worship, actually, of God. Mm. So that you enjoy that for what it's worth, for the time that it's there. Uh, Wonderful. If something survives, uh, then, yep, that's great. Uh, But if it doesn't, that what you've managed to have is the the value, the deep sense of satisfaction of Mm. working at whatever it is that you were given to Mm. work at. And it's also a gift gift from God. It's a gift. I suppose. Enjoy it. Yeah, Mm. yeah. So, Ian, why is work so frustrating? Well, I think it is frustrating when people don't have a proper sense of perspective on work. If you think that work is your sole reason for being, it's the sole sense of value, it is how you are recognised, it's where you get your sense of who you are, then that's a recipe for frustration or worse, uh, for all the reasons that I think the Bible gives in Ecclesiastes. It's going to come to nothing. So what does that mean? Well, you've come to nothing. It's all gone. So what's the point? Why even get out of bed? If you, if you go down that route, then nothing lies down there but despondency. Uh, all worse. Mm. Well, let me leave you with the Bible's reflections on the, the big question, why is work so frustrating? From Ecclesiastes 2.21, which says, For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Ian Harper. Thanks for listening to Bigger Questions. To help you continue exploring the Bigger Questions, we've developed a reading guide to accompany this episode called Chasing Life. The guide has further questions, stories and reflections to help you understand the book of Ecclesiastes. To get your own copy or to find out more, 
check out the Bigger Questions website or contact your local City Bible Forum office. If you've enjoyed the show, why not support it on Patreon? You can help us keep asking bigger questions for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us next time.